Good to see you this morning, South Canyon. I tried to blend in with the chairs, but uh, it didn't work so well up here, I guess. If you would open your copy of the scriptures and find your way to the book of 1 Thessalonians, this morning we are going to focus our attention on verses 2 through 10. There were some wise cracks last week about one verse, so I'm making up for it this week. We've got a lot more than just one. <clears throat> we just finished the Olympics some time ago, and uh, athletes were celebrated for their ability to compete and place, either as bronze or silver, or the ultimate was gold. And their families and their nations celebrated their accomplishments. We celebrate birthdays, and that's a good thing. The life that God has given to someone we love, and we celebrate for a lot of things. Football teams, basketball teams, on and on it goes. This morning, I hope that you will hear from what Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, that it is good and right that we celebrate the gospel's power on display in the church. That's kind of the, the big idea of the passage as I understand it. Paul is celebrating what he has observed firsthand in the church, and, that, and what it is he's seen is the gospel's power on display. We'll see that in three movements, verses 2 through the beginning of verse 5. We are right to reflect on and thank God for the gospel transformation we see in others. And verses, the last half of verse 5 through verse 8, we are right to imitate godly believers. And then in verses 9 through 10, <clears throat> we are right to understand Christianity as a lifestyle of repentance. All that is cause for celebrating the gospel's power on display in the church. <clears throat> and I pray that God will help us today to hear his word. Lord, we just simply once again come to you and say, Speak, O Lord, and help your people help us to hear and obey. Grant your loving kindness and favor upon us, both as I speak and as we hear. Let your spirit take truth and apply it to us for your glory and our good. In Christ's name, amen. Please follow along as I read beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. <clears throat> For you received the word in much affliction 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word and may he write its truths upon all our hearts. So we see Paul speaks of his joy, his thankfulness for the gospel transformation in these believers. He's pointing us to a practice we should adopt as well. It is right and good to thank God for what we see him doing in the lives of others. Now how do we do this? Looking at verses 2 and 3, he provides an answer. We ought to pray for one another, simply, right? I mean, it's so obvious that it's almost embarrassing to have to say it, but this is a way in which we thank God for what he's doing in the lives of others. We simply praise God for it. We pray back to him our joy over it. I've long made a practice of using the church directory as my prayer prompter. I'm acclimating to a much larger ministry More people, more praying. But based on the example of Paul and Christians through the ages, we pray for our brethren in our church. And we pray for our brethren in other churches. You'll hear this often in our pastoral prayers. Even today, praying for the church in Afghanistan. Praying for redeeming grace. Praying for other gospel works in churches around the world. I mean, that we should pray for one another is likely not news to us. But as we look at verse 3, we're also instructed by how to pray for one another. So it's not just pray for one another, but look at how Paul structured his prayers for these people. Looking at verse 3, he remembers before God and our Father your work of faith and labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Simply put, he's celebrating and praying to God in praise over the church's faithful work and witness, over the church's loving deeds. They care well for one another, and the church's enduring hope. This This right here ought to be a pattern for each and every one of us. It should inform our prayer life as we pray for our brethren here at South Canyon and in Rapid City, or our brethren in Ankara, Turkey, or Afghanistan, or anywhere else. We ought to pray that Christians would be faithful witnesses of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to pray that they would walk with wisdom that they would express the love of Christ, and that they would continue to trust Jesus is indeed coming, and he will reward his people. Why do we thank God? 
Why did Paul thank God for these people and for what they were doing? He thanked God because he could see the realities of the gospel at work in their lives. Now, if, if you're not aware of what God is doing in the lives of others, perhaps the fault is not with them, but it's with you. You know, the body working together, as we talked in our life class this morning, our combined session, it is intended that when I hurt my toe, my body feels it. And when one of us hurts, we should all hurt. When one of us rejoices, we should all rejoice because we're connected. And so if there is in your mind an absence of understanding of God's work in this great multitude of people, perhaps it's because you're not connected like you ought to be. That's a sobering reminder for us to invest in one another and to pursue relationships with one another. Paul, when he was in Thessalonica, ministering the gospel to these believers, he saw their faith in practice. And now he has just received word from Timothy, according to chapter 3 in verses 1 through 8, that that is continuing. Paul, they didn't stop when you left. They weren't just doing it while you were there to make sure they were crossing their T's and dotting their I's. No, they are actually doing this more and more, Paul. They are standing firm in the Lord. And Paul, in his own suffering, was so encouraged by this good report. And it led him to express his confidence, looking at verse 4, that God indeed loves this church and he has chosen them to be his own people. I mean, if that's all you hear this morning as a Christian, that ought to get you excited. God loves you. God chose you. He made you his son, his daughter in the faith. Now these believers not only received the good word, the good news in word, but notice what Paul says at the beginning of verse 5. But there was an accompanying sign of the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Spirit actually didn't just say, okay, Paul, this is a strange new word that you're bringing to us, like the church or the, the unbelievers at the Mars Hill. This is a strange tale you're telling us. Uh, maybe we'll hear a little bit more about this. <clears throat> That's not what took place. In fact, what Paul says is he saw the Holy Spirit bring understanding that what Paul was saying was truth. The Holy Spirit brought convictional understanding. This is truth to order my life around. This is truth to die for. This is truth to live for. And there was this accompanying full-throated faith that the good news is indeed true. Now, I have an idea that there might be some here today who don't yet believe in the gospel. And perhaps you're inquiring, now let me check this out from a distance and see whether or not the gospel is true. Let me just say thank you for coming. We welcome non-Christians to attend our services, to watch Christians gathering together around God's Word and submitting to the Word and to one another and caring for one another. We want to be witnesses of God's rule on this earth. We want to be godly examples, and we welcome you in our services. 
But whether you showed up on your own or you came as the result of an invitation from a member at South Canyon, we thank you for coming. And it's our prayer that you would see and hear the good news, not just in word, but in power accompanied by the Holy Spirit. We want the transformation that the Spirit of God wrought in our lives to be your experience. To literally running hell-bent on doing what I want to, now my life is renewed. I'm free from sorrow, free from guilt, free from shame, and I'm set on a course of obedience and service. We want that for you. But the Spirit must bring that to your heart. Having godly desires coupled with obedience is the result of the Spirit's presence and power. You know, self-denial will take you so far. I've known some very disciplined people, and they can get up really, really early. They can read copious amounts of scriptures and other books. They can exercise. They can watch their diet. They can make sure that they're busy with activities of doing good within the community, and that will take them so far. But then something unexpected happens, and all that discipline goes out the window. And life is disrupted at such an extent that they no longer have desires that they once had. Well, the Holy Spirit's presence will take godly desires and it will marry it up to obedience. He gives us power to do what he's called us to do. And while this isn't spelled out until chapter 2, we also need to be aware that as we share the gospel, we do so with integrity. So I'm not trying to manipulate you this morning with emotions. You'll notice in my preaching, typically I don't use a lot of stories or illustrations because I'm just not that clever, for one. But two, I I am aware, painfully aware, of how sometimes we can respond to a story more easily and more readily than we respond to truth. And... It is my conviction that nothing against stories and illustrations, but that when the Spirit bears witness of the truth, that is much more powerful, much more enduring than when I can win an argument or capture your heart's attention. Paul says, hey, we came to share the gospel with integrity. We weren't trying to manipulate people, nor did we share it for personal gain. It was out of the conviction that this indeed is the message of salvation that God has brought to the nations. And we as his people need to communicate it to the world. And further, the results of this gospel message is fruit of the gospel. And that fruit has come as the result of the Spirit, not our oratorical skills. It's not our wisdom. It's not our strength. We are simply doing what God has called us to do. We are living faithful lives. We are living generous lives as we share the good news. So Paul is thanking God for what he sees, the transformation that's taken place in these people's lives. It is right for us to do that. And secondly... It is also right, as Paul goes on to say, for us to imitate godly believers in an age where individualism is touted. I mean, you don't want to be just another person on TikTok. You have to be the person. You don't want to just have a YouTube 
channel. You want to have the YouTube channel. It's all about promoting yourself and, and setting yourself apart from everybody else. And Paul, <clears throat> Paul says in verse, the end of verse 5 and the beginning of verse 6 that those who are genuinely converted become faithful examples of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You became imitators of us, Paul says. You know what kind of people we were among you. You saw our lives and doctrine. We didn't just expose you to ourselves on Sunday and on the Sabbath or on a Sunday gathering, and we didn't just teach you something, and then we cloistered ourselves away during the week and lived a different life. No, you watched both our teaching and our lives. They saw that Paul and his companions had integrity. They saw that they were loving and generous. And that, what that did was, it wasn't, <clears throat> we're going to start imitating Paul's gravelly voice. We're going to adopt Paul's favorite clothing line. We're going to buy the same sneakers that he wears. It was this, though. It modeled to them how Christians should conduct themselves. And so that is what they imitated from the apostle and his companions. This, this has been the practice of not only Christians, but people for millennia. You, you want an apprenticeship. You want to learn how to finish concrete, to be an electrician, to be a plumber, whatever it is. You want an apprenticeship in accounting or finance or uh, administration. You go and get an apprenticeship, and then you learn from the one who is skilled in that trade, in that field, and you imitate them. This is the way it's always been. And somehow we, we think that by disconnecting ourselves from a tradition of imitation, what is good and right, that somehow we're better But again, as I said earlier today, being a lone ranger is not the teaching or practice of Christianity. I wondered if you noticed the subtle words in verse 6 that Paul used as he spoke of the church's imitation of them. A church that receives God's message with joy is a church that imitates its Lord and Savior. Did you notice that in verse 6? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. So Paul isn't building this church in, in Thessalonica for his own social status. He isn't using the pulpit to express his own opinions. He's not interested in creating a cult-like following. He wants the Thessalonians to understand that ultimately what they are doing is they are imitating their Lord and Savior. Follow me as I follow Christ, he would say elsewhere. And when someone's not following Christ, don't follow them. You see also that the byproduct of genuine conversion is a life that is changed. It's a life that others ought to imitate. Paul and his companions proved to be genuine and godly. I've said that over and over the conditions, however, in which the Thessalonians were hearing the gospel and being taught the faith was deteriorating. 
So what you have happening is Paul brings his baggage into Thessalonica. He left Philippi under pressure to be killed, and so they smuggle him out of the city. He comes to Thessalonica some many miles away, and he's now presenting the gospel there. And they are believing him. But then word gets back to Philippi, and they come and they try to shut this down. Paul will leave Thessalonica. But guess who doesn't leave? The church. The church lives in this city. And now these people who had embraced the gospel, who had been given the Spirit, and who were living out the gospel, who were following the example of Paul, they saw their lives were getting turned upside down over the gospel. And they have a choice to make. They have a choice to make. How easy it would be for them to simply say, it's too hard. It's not worth the headache. It's not worth the hardship. Let's just go back to our socially acceptable idols. But instead, they swam against the current. They held fast to the faith. They ordered their lives around the scriptures. And oh, how we see God's providence to bring suffering to this young church. There is no better environment to learn how strong one's convictions are than when all you hold dear and true is being challenged. I know my own flesh. I don't like that. One of my biggest recurring dreams, and by saying that, I, I don't mean like every night, but frequently... I will think about <clears throat> going back to my childhood as a kid from the 80s, you know, um, you see Red Dawn, like that movie, right? There, there's just this idea of this outpost of people trying to fight against the, the bad guys who have invaded America and they're, they're high school teenagers holed up in the hills. And, and I just think of what would I do <clears throat> if I really started suffering for the gospel? You know, if someone came into my home and said, we're going to hurt your family unless you stop preaching. I hope, I hope I would be willing to trade even the most precious things to me in the world for the gospel. But until we are tried, until we are really tested, We don't really know how important this stuff is. And praise God he didn't let there be a long pause between this church's formation and this church's suffering. And yet we see God, because he came with such power in the spirit, with such convictional truth, that these people were transformed. And they weren't going to go back to their old idols. They were going to stay faithful to the true and one living God. From the time of the New Testament to this very day, Christians risk losing their livelihood, their status in the community, their wealth, perhaps even their freedom or life for the gospel. And that is why the elders of South Canyon pray for this church, why they pray for you. We also labor to watch our own lives and doctrine, not just for the sake of modeling something good, but to honor and worship our Savior. 
We also have a responsibility to help this church stand firm in the faith against all pressures to abandon it. And you know what? It's not just a one-sided relationship with the elders, but it's the church's responsibility also to pray for its elders and the deacons. Pray that we would follow Jesus. Pray that we would provide a worthy example of what it means to be a Christ follower. And elders and deacons, we ought to remember the responsibility that we shoulder as servant leaders among God's people. Not only are we representing the name of Christ, but people are also looking at us as an example to follow. And our relationship with Christ will directly impact and shape our thoughts and our behaviors. So let me just encourage you, deacons and elders, walk with your God humbly. Notice as we look at verses 7 through 8, not only did Paul bring a faithful example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and not only did the, the people imitate his life, demonstrating a genuine conversion on their part, but look at what happens when a church gladly receives the gospel and then practices the faith and imitates their godly leaders. The byproduct of genuine conversion is a corporate witness. Verses 7 and 8 Paul says, you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, this is a big area. This isn't, no offense, this isn't Rapid City. This is like South Dakota. I mean, this is hundreds of miles in distance. Word has spread. The gospel has spread. Paul goes on to say, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in these places, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. This church, this young church that was experiencing persecution early in its infancy, has now become, as a result of embracing the gospel and following their leaders and living out their faith, they have become missionaries to the nations. It's incredible. They became an example to those believers in Achaia and Macedonia and even areas outside of that. What we see in verse 8 can simply be stated like this. The Thessalonians took the gospel to people and places outside their city. What an epiphany, right? Like, isn't this what should be marked our church as well? This young church, Paul says, began to sound forth God's word so that as Paul traveled in new regions, he came to places where it wasn't necessary for him to preach the gospel because a Thessalonian had already been there with the gospel. Wouldn't that be awesome if our church started doing this? And guess what we have? Isn't that what Josh Brown and a group of former members of South Canyon are doing as we plant uh, Redeeming Grace? Isn't that what Kaylin Trapp is doing as she represents Christ in South Canyon in Turkey? Isn't that what Jamin Eben, who has a past with this area and this church, who's now representing Christ with Teaching Truth International? Now, these are just three examples that I know of. I'm, not, I'm, I'm new here, so forgive me. I'm, I'm sure there's many more. 
And we ought to pray that God would raise up more gospel witnesses from this church to go to the nations. I mean, this is the natural thing. It isn't just that this church would grow and then we kind of just take care of our own, but that that we would go and we would take the gospel. Lord, we just pause for a moment to pray for these brothers and sisters who have been sent out and are doing your work. We pray that you would give redeeming grace godly elders. We pray that you would be with Kaylin as she learns languages, she makes influences and impacts and connections within the city in which she's serving in Turkey. We pray that you would be with Jamin and with Teaching Truth International, use that organization to equip pastors and Bible teachers and lay leaders within the church. Father, we pray that you would raise up more and more, even our own children we give to you, Lord. Use them. Use them because the nations need to hear the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, there's something that's so simple, so important, and yet so easily overlooked. If you notice in verses 4 through 6, Paul is subtly doing something. He's modeling for us his own humility, and I don't think it's a false humility. You see, Paul, it could be easy for someone to say, hey, well, I did all these things. I mean, look at these churches that I've started. They're thriving, they're growing, and they're just exploding, and they're going out and planting other churches and sharing the gospel. Man, what a great collaborator I am. What a great entrepreneur I am. What a great builder of churches and equipper of saints I am. No, Paul doesn't do that at all. In fact, what we see is he attributes all this gospel work and fruit to the gracious work of the Trinity in verses 4 through 6. He says it's the Father's love and choosing. It's, it's implied it's the Son's obedience and suffering. And it's the Spirit's power to regenerate and produce obedience. You see, the Trinity is the one doing all the work. All the corporate transformation that's taking place in this church, as as it receives the gospel and as it shares the gospel, it becomes more credible to the world as a result of the Spirit's work, the Trinity's work, more so than it would if it was just man's work. So Paul is not taking any credit whatsoever. He's giving all glory to God. And you think about it, how else could anyone explain what God is doing in the church than to give him glory for it? Again, if you were here for the life class this morning, you're going to hear some little similar things. That is not by a master plan of mine. That's just by God's providence of the text and the teaching. Where we have, even within our church, people of means and people who have little. Where we have people of the majority culture and of the minority culture, and yet they love on one another. They care for one another. They show hospitality to one another. They pray for one another. Where we have people who are rejoicing in each other's successes, not being jealous of it. 
where we have people who are getting into the suffering of their brothers and sisters, not shrinking back from, I got too much stuff on my own plate, you deal with your own problems. No, we have people who are doing life together. And what's the explanation for that? What would cause that of social status, of financial, educational experiences, backgrounds, all the diversity that we have, what causes us to get along? Well, the God and the gospel are the only explanation. Our corporate identity is one of a blood-bought people who are filled with God's spirit and are being built up together by God's word. And we recognize that God has plans from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to make a kingdom and priest to himself, according to Revelation 5. And not only is that true here, but it is true in every church that God has stationed on this globe. He's given each congregation such an extent of diversity that it defies the world's understanding. The only explanation is to give God the glory. And so we come to verses 9 and 10, and we see that Paul says, teaches us, that it is also right to understand Christianity as a lifestyle of repentance. This is going to take a moment of digging into, but we read these verses. For they themselves, the, the, the people that Paul is meeting as he goes and continues in his travels, they are reporting concerning us, the Thessalonians, the kind of reception, or I'm sorry, Paul and his companions, the kind of reception that he had among the Thessalonians. And notice, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Without the Spirit's enabling work of repentance and faith, we have no power to turn from our idols. And we have no power to serve the true and living God. So if you're here this morning as a guest and you're wondering how one becomes a Christian, let me just say, it's not by going to church. I went to church for the first 19 years and nine months of my life. I say that because I was 19 when I became a Christian. And I was in the womb before I came into the world, and I was in church when I was in the womb. Some of you might be like that. It's not going to church that makes one a Christian, and nor is it doing good works. Nor is it by affirming a creed or confession. What makes one a Christian is by experiencing the transforming power of the love of God as revealed to us through Christ Jesus. The Spirit of God has to bring that understanding. He he takes his word and he shows us that we have not measured the holy standard of God. We haven't met the standard that God has set in the law. I mean, anybody taking God's name in vain? Anybody ever lied about something? Anybody ever stolen anything? Anybody, anybody ever wanted something that didn't belong with you, to you? I mean, the law doesn't just speak about actions. It speaks about heart attitudes as well. Coveting. And let's not forget, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Something that we love, to borrow a phrase, 
are precious? I mean, this, this is, it strikes to the heart of every single one of us. And we can hear those things and we can immediately justify ourselves. But I'm not that bad. I, I mean, you want to meet a bad guy? I know where to point you on that. But the reality is the Spirit has to bring understanding that we are sinners, that I am a sinner who has rebelled against our Creator, my Creator, my God. And yet in His love and mercy, He sent His own Son into the world to pay for my sins and to give me life. I mean, this is unbelievable. And yet only the Spirit can give us full assurance that this work of grace is both sufficient for us and applies to us. I can't convince you of that. I can open the Scriptures and I can show you clearly what they say, but it is the Holy Spirit who must bring that to you. So if that's the Holy Spirit's role, then what's our responsibility? And you're here today and you're wondering how to become a Christian. And, and what you're hearing is, um, I need a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit in my life or else. So then where's my fault in this? What am I supposed to do in this? And here's what I would say. I would encourage you to pray that God would give you his spirit. I would encourage you to pray that the spirit would come with such power that you would have freedom to confess even those hidden sins, to plead for forgiveness and to receive the power to turn from those sinful ways and serve the true and living God. Friend, I believe if you ask God to give you his spirit, that he will bring an understanding of who he is who you are, and of your need. And then he will meet that need with his power. But you know what? Genuine repentance isn't just a one-time act. Christians must also live in daily repentance and faith. I wondered if you noticed the dual nature of verses 9 and 10. The Thessalonians shared their testimony of receiving the gospel and how they now were serving the Lord in verse 9. But the Thessalonians also shared this, their ongoing faith in Christ's future return. You see, their future hope stems from their original repentance and it is connected to their ongoing repentance and faith. Christians who, I prayed a prayer once, and then the rest of life is just doing and occupying myself with things that I want to do. That's not real Christianity. Real Christianity means that I, I know that I'm forgiven from Christ. I, can, I don't know the day, but it was in January of 1992 where God smote my heart with powerful conviction. But that wasn't the last time I repented. I've had to go to my children and ask for forgiveness for an unkind word, for being demanding and harsh. I've had to ask Natalie for forgiveness for a multitude of sins. I have to live in daily repentance and faith. 
And so these Thessalonians, they got it. They understood that what began here gave them hope for the future, but also required a life of repentance and faith, a life of witnessing to God. They're not going to return to idols. They're going to continue on this path that God has put before them, and they will wait for his glorious son to return. It reminds me of of the words that come to us from Hebrews chapter 10. If you want to turn there, this will be our last passage for the morning. Verses 23 through 25. Hebrews chapter 10. This this marks out, I believe, that that time between a dash, that old story of a of a grave marker, a tombstone, you know, your birth date and then the day that person passed. And it's just separated by a dash. So your dash, as it were, ought to be filled with the activities and the work and the joy and the glory and the hardship of what we read here in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, for Christians, if we've encountered the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, our call is to persevere until the end. And thanks be to God that we don't persevere in our own strength. The Spirit helps us. But a profession of faith in Christ isn't just a one-time thing. It's a daily reality. Every day, we need to battle against the pull of the world that is calling us to forsake Jesus and trade Him for something new and better. Every day, we need to remind ourselves of the truth of Christ's claims and of the reality of the hope He offers to us. How do we do that? Well, God has given us the gift of his spirit and his word, and he's promised that if we are truly in Christ, no one shall be able to pluck them out of my hand, John 10. What is the normal way in which God enables his people to persevere? Well, according to verses 24 and 25, by not neglecting to meet together. You think the writer of Hebrews has the universal church in mind in that sense? I mean, I'm here today. I I can't meet with my brothers and sisters from Anderson in Indiana today. Not right now in this moment. So the meeting together is, is a local church. We will all be together someday, but not yet. I think the writer of Hebrews has in mind that Christians meeting together in local churches. How do we stay faithful until the end? through our life together as a church. Something that's fundamentally corporate. It's not just individual, me and Jesus. Somebody once said that Christianity is personal, but it's not private. Right? Like, God loves you. But that love is going to be seen by everybody, as we see here in our text, right? These Thessalonians, they weren't saved, and then they hid away in their houses until the dust settled. 
They went out and they shared the gospel and they kept meeting together and they kept following Christ together. It was visible. And while this gathering together is certainly not less than showing up at church on a regular basis, it is much, much more than just showing up. The writer says we are to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not provoke one another to wrath. Let me just be clear about that, right? We're not to pick at each other. We're not to make divisions and uh, wrangle about traditions and, and genealogies and all these things that can divide us, politics. We are to figure out ways to encourage one another to actually get better at loving one another and doing godly things. Isn't that a project for us to think about this afternoon? The love these Christians had for each other was earth-shattering. Later on, we would read in chapter 10 of Hebrews that they were partners with those who were exposed to reproach and affliction for the sake of the gospel. It kind of mirrors what we read in 1 Thessalonians about Paul and the church there. They were partners, even though both parties were suffering as a result of the gospel. We are called to maintain a faithfulness through good times and bad by forming within this local church a network of deep relationships, fueled not by our life station, but by the Word of God. These relationships are meant to encourage us, to exhort us, to spur us on, to forsake worldliness, and to expend our lives for the kingdom of God. Now, the very nature of relationships is that they require commitment to flourish. God willing, Natalie and I will celebrate 26 years this fall. Okay, 27. There we go. Doggone it. Never say something like that without thinking about it first. All right. See that? A year shaved off. It's been so short of a season. Does that work, honey? No? All right. Relationships require commitment. And it seems like if you listen to the language in our culture about church, church Christians talking, right? What is a lot of talk revolves around community, right? But we're somewhat allergic to commitment. So um, we want to come and see. We want to benefit from the resources and the community here. But we're a little hesitant to commit to South Canyon. Why is that? If it's good enough to sit in on a life group, if it's good enough to come on a Sunday morning in here, if it's good enough to want to help out with VBS, why isn't it good enough to commit to? I'm pressing you here a little bit. I know it's uncomfortable, but commitment is the very essence. It's the very fiber and framework of a relationship. It's not one of convenience. It's one of sacrifice. It's one of solidarity. And the Bible is clear that commitment and community are two sides of the same coin. Our own experience shows that to be true. 
But here in Hebrews 10 is a little bit of what commitment should look like within the local church. That's why you will hear us as your elders talk a lot about church, uh, the importance of membership in church. And the term member simply comes from how the Apostle Paul talks about being a part of a local church. We're all members of the body of Christ. And, and we understand that when you become a member of a church, you're basically taking all the commitments that the Bible calls you to make to other Christians, like the commitment to meet together regularly, the commitment to encourage one another, to spur one another on, the things that we see here in Hebrews 10. You're taking all these things and you're making it clear that you're making these commitments to this particular group of Christians, the Christians who gather here at South Canyon Baptist Church. Now, I realize we started in 1 Thessalonians and now we're here in Hebrews. Let me just say again, how we got to Hebrews is to understand what life together looks like, a life that we ought to understand as Christians will be a lifestyle of repentance and faith. So as we close, we ought to celebrate the gospel's power on display in the church. I mean, the fact that you guys are all here and you've endured 48 minutes of preaching, that's the display of the gospel. We do this by reflecting on and thanking God for his transforming work in the lives of those around us. And we do this by imitating godly leaders. And we do this by practicing a lifestyle of repentance and faith. You see, God has given South Canyon everything it needs to accomplish his purposes. We don't lack anything. We have the Father's love. We have the Son's righteousness. And we have the Spirit's power. So let's take the good news to someone this week. How about that? Let's invite a lost friend to come and see God's power on display through the diversity and gospel transformation that's taking place here. Let's celebrate God's good work through his word. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your word, for it teaches us about yourself. It reveals to us the glories of your character and of the cross of our Savior. It gives us hope and life eternal. We pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray that your spirit would come and work in your people as we hear the word, as we reflect and pause to think back on it. Lord, let this church be built on the rock that is Jesus, nothing else. And let us celebrate your glory, your power, your work as it's being done in this church and around this world. In Jesus' name, amen.